Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. Again, we're in Nehemiah 9 today, so let's read from God's Word. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenini. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all your host, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous." And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued them, you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand. 
with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had borne them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies and made them suffer. And in their time of suffering, they cried out to you and heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned to you and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through, the, through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands." Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their kingdom and amidst your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy, its fruits and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. I know that's a long passage, but it is, it is really good. It's the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray for Billy right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this, this long but beautiful reminder of what you did for your people. Hmm what you did for the people of Israel as you led them out of Egypt, as you led them through the wilderness, you led them into the promised land and dealt faithfully with them, even when they were wicked, even when they were rebellious. I pray that this passage would convict us, and I pray that you would give Billy wisdom and insight as he preaches to us today. I pray that our hearts would be softened and challenged and exhorted where it is necessary, and we would see a little bit of ourselves in, in the people of Israel and the way that they rebelled so that we might repent, but also recognize that you are a good father who deals with us mercifully and righteously. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Man, kudos to Josh. That's a long passage, but there's so much richness and goodness in it as we dive back into the book of Nehemiah. So this past week, Hannah and I finally, after a lengthy process, closed on our house, which is awesome. Yes. Uh, we bought the home that we had previously been renting. Uh, we wanted to wait until we had finalized everything um, that we would start 
doing some projects before we'd start painting or doing anything like that. So Wednesday we closed, and last night as we prepared for bed, I started looking around, and everywhere I looked, I saw projects, right? Like I saw a half-painted bathroom with paint-splattered plastic on the floor. I saw a shelf that was in the hallway that was being moved from one bedroom to another place, but just kind of gave up and just stopped in the hall. Um, I just saw all this kind of chaos, and I started thinking, man, how in the world did we let this get out of hand so quickly in just a few short days, right? You see, accumulating a lot of stuff, right, can be a surprising and sad thing to observe. It's kind of like when you put a few dishes in the sink, and the next thing you know, it's two days later, and there's like a mountain, and you're like, I should have done these dishes. What happened? Here's the thing, though. I think that's what happens for you and I with sin. If we were to take a step back, right, and soberly look at our week and kind of just take inventory of where we're at, I think we would see that we can accumulate a lot of sin. Now think over your lifetime. Think of all the different times that we've fallen short of what God's called us to. We can accumulate a lot. So how do you deal with all of that? How do you deal with that guilt? Our only hope is the mercy of God. And we're thankful today that there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us, right? Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, right? If you are a sinner, which, surprise, is all of us, then this passage has tremendous significance for you. If you feel burned out, if you feel kind of like a tired failure, if you feel just distant from God, then I want to just ask you, man, allow this passage to minister to you. We're in chapter nine now, and this is three weeks after the revival that we just read about last week in chapter eight. They had celebrated, they had rejoiced, but now the people of Israel see they have unfinished business with God. They recount their history and the abundance of times that they offended God. They walked away from God, and and here's why they do this. Here's here's what kind of gets them to see this. They're rebuilding. Really, that's what the whole point of Nehemiah is, is they're going back to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the wall, and they're realizing the reason they were in this predicament, the reason Jerusalem was in shambles, is because of the disobedience that's in their history. They see how in need of mercy they are, and so they are seeking out God in repentance. Last week, we saw a mark of revival, and we saw it as reestablishing the authority of Scripture, of God's Word in our lives. And today, we see yet another mark of revival, and it's this, acknowledging sin and seeking God in genuine confession and heartfelt repentance. Now, what we get in chapter 9, again, I know it's lengthy, it's 38 verses, there's a lot going on, but we get this incredibly robust summary of the Old Testament history. This is where the history from Genesis was headed. At the end of verse 37, we see where their history had led them. It says this, we are in great distress. Here's the question, where do you or maybe the person that you're caring for, the person that, that you're discipling, where do you turn in times of sin and distress, especially when you are in distress due to your own sin, not the sin of somebody else, right? You made the mess. How do you deal with it? Is there hope for you? 
Well, the answer is a resounding yes, right? There is good news for distressed people. Here's the thing. If you have made a mess of things, then you are not outside of the good news of Jesus Christ in the gospel, right? In times of sin and distress, we can experience God's merciful restoration as we prayerfully, repentantly reflect on the story of Scripture, We want to repent as we reflect on the story of Scripture because the story of Scripture, the story of God's Word, it gives us hope. We see our righteous God is also a God of mercy. And we see this rhythm of rebellion and mercy. Rebellion and mercy. But here's the deal, Coramdale. We have a more robust story than the people had in Nehemiah's day. We know where the story is headed And how our distress will be dealt with finally and fully in the person of Jesus Christ. We have the power of the indwelling spirit to fight sin. And we know the end of the story where sin will be no more. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves just yet. Right? Let's see here a people who are praying and they're praying specifically the story of the Bible. Right, if you want a, a really good study on genuine confession and repentance, man, this is a great place to turn. We need it, after all, because we can make no progress, and the people we are ministering to and loving can make no progress apart from repentance. Right? Has there been real brokenness? Are, are they just saying the right things? Is this genuine confession? Is this worldly sorrow, or is this godly grief leading to repentance? So here's how we're going to break it down this morning. We're going to look at three parts. The first is pursuing God in heartfelt confession and adoration. The second is praying in view of the storyline of Scripture. And then finally, we're going to land the plane looking at them pleading for restoration. So let's start with pursuing God in heartfelt confession and adoration. So the first five verses set the scene for the tone of this great confession that takes place. We see these themes of personal introspection and and God-centered adoration. Right in verse 1, it says their outer appearance, it, it reflects the condition of their heart. They're very serious. They're emotional. They were fasting, covered in sackcloth. They put dirt on their head. So they're fasting, they're hungry, they they have sackcloths. You can imagine that's not the most comfortable fabric in the world to wear. They want the guilt off of them. They put dirt on their head to show the, the low depth of sorrow that they were in. Now I point this out to you, not to say that you need to add sackcloth to your Pinterest board, okay? That's not the point. The point is that this is not some dispassionate, cold repentance, This is earnest. This is serious. They were in sorrow over their sin. Coram Deo, this is where restoration begins. Matthew 5, 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Confession and repentance, it's not just something we we do flippantly. It's not something we do at a confession booth. It's engaged. This is not like paying taxes, right? Oh, I need to do this, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it and be done with it. No, we confess our sins to God when we take confession and repentance lightly. What we're showing is that we don't take our sins seriously and we don't take the one whom we've offended seriously. So we see, verse 2, they confess the sins of their history and nation and they move along. We see them yet again in verse 3, reading God's word. And here's the thing about this. The word of God exposes sin and leads to confession. 
The Word of God exposes sin and it leads to confession. One of the big things we emphasize here is we have community groups, but within our community groups, we have these smaller groups of two to three called DNA groups, which means discover, nurture, act. And what we want to do often is let the Word of God expose the areas in our life where we are not submitting to the rule and reign of Jesus. You see, apart from the Word, we don't know our sin. We're at least not in specificity and in gravity, right? But with the word of God, we are cut to the heart and we are driven to Jesus. Friends, this is grace. They are taking care of unfinished business with God. Do you need to do that this morning? Perhaps you've been convicted about something, but you haven't confessed and repentant. You haven't sought to make things right. You haven't gone before the Lord to make things right. So where does this lead the people, right? After they go before God, they're repenting, they seek the Lord. Where does it lead them? Well, in verses four and five, we see it leads them to adoration, right? Specifically, look at the end of verse five. It says, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. You see, the the nation of Israel, they're worshiping with a loud voice. They're focusing their attention to God. Why? Because God is the one they are seeking for restoration. So let me ask this question. If you were praying and people were listening, what would people learn about God? Would they learn that this is a God that has an everlasting nature? That this is a God that you exalt, that you praise above all? Friends, it's important, so important in our prayer life that we include adoration that we praise God for who he is, that we adore him for all that he is. There can be no holiness without a God-centered, Christ-adoring heart. Friends, God is after your joy. Sermons like this, I know, when we read about confession and repentance, it feels like, wow, this is real somber. You know, this is really kind of a drag. I don't know what I think about all this. But the point is this, God's after your joy. He's after a joy that pours out obedience Not the reverse, not a begrudging obedience, but a robust zeal. The second thing we see this morning is they are praying in view of the story of Scripture. They're praying in view of the story of Scripture. They view God and themselves in light of Scripture. They acknowledge how they have rebelled against God, and they acknowledge who God is and what he's done. And notice the main subjects of the prayer, right? We, they, us, that's personal. You, your, yours, that's God. These pronouns are used some 85 times in this passage. Friends, that's what confession and repentance is all about. It's about God. It's about what breaks the heart of the child of God is that we have offended him. So let's let's look at how they walk through this narrative, this storyline. Verse 6 picks up with creation. It says, it shows Nehemiah begins with this uniqueness of God that he alone is God, that Nehemiah is emphasizing that there isn't a God over this, there's not a God over that, but there's one God, that God made everything, and as a result, he alone deserves praise, right? One of the unique things of this season is that if we want to go out and about, one of our safest bets is to be outside, right? That's why we gather outside right now, because it's Kind of not good to be inside a really close proximity without masks and all of that. So a lot of us are starting to find ourselves maybe out on the lake more or maybe hiking or maybe just going for a walk. And this is an opportunity for us to join with creation in praising our creator. 
right? Not just in big majestic things like mountains or sunrises, but even as we observe God's world in little ways, right? Like kids, when your tooth falls out, guess what happens? Another one grows back. That's crazy. That's remarkable. That should make you and I praise and thank God. He created everything, including us. The second thing they see is there's a covenant, right? There's this overflow of Genesis 11 and 12 and, verse, and chapter 17 that they're looking back on where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And the point of looking at this particular covenant, which is a promise that God made to his people, is this. God keeps his promise. God keeps his promise. And this is a massive emphasis in this prayer. He kept his promise, it says in verse 8, because he is righteous. What does that mean? Right, We hear that word a lot. It's a very churchy word. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, God always does what is right. That he is perfectly just. That he always acts consistently with his character. We keep his righteousness in mind as we continue because there's this tension that's revealed that God is both merciful and yet he's righteous. So there's creation, there's covenant, and then we see the exodus and the wilderness wandering. And this shows us that God sees the affliction of his people. He hears their cry. And why is all of this important? Again, because right now they are presently again in distress. God has responded previously to Israel's affliction, and now they're asking him, hey God, do this again. They keep reflecting on their history, right? They remember the Red Sea. They remember God leading them, giving them the law and the Sabbath. They reflect on God's provisions in the wilderness, that God cared for them all the way to the promised land, showing this incredible divine love and hospitality. Maybe you look at the story of Scripture and you see things like manna falling from heaven and you feel like, man, God's never done anything like that for me. And he's never dropped bagels from the sky for me. But he didn't do that for Israel throughout their whole history either. This was a special moment. Right in Joshua 5, it says that they entered the land and the manna ceased, that they ate the produce of the land, but it was still God's provision. So whether God provides through a paycheck, an apple tree, the supermarket or the generosity of others or the bread of angels, it's still God's provision. It's still his grace. Then we hit the conquest, right? Judges, kings, and eventually exile. And what we see here in the next portion of Israel's history is a cycle starts. It's a cycle that hits and it's rebellion and mercy. And I don't have time this morning to hit all of these, but there are six times that we see this cycle of rebellion, mercy. Here's the deal. After being in slavery, the nation of Israel, they're finally free. And what do they decide they want to return to? Slavery. They make a golden calf. They return to slavery. That's what sin does. It enslaves us. Look, y'all, sin is stupid. It is. But that's what happens, right? And it's not the last time it happens either. Israel goes back and forth, back and forth in this insanity cycle. And now here they sit and they're looking at the Babylonian captivity that they're presently in. And they realize, man, we've done it again. We rebelled against God and we are in need of his mercy. And so they repent. They view themselves and they view God rightly. For confession and repentance to be genuine, we must acknowledge our sin rightly and see God rightly. No attempts at a positive spin, right? No going, oh, God, sorry for my discretion. No, no. like we, we own what we have done. It's honest. 
That's what the Spirit does. When the Spirit produces genuine confession and repentance, man, you can't keep people from Jesus. They are cut to the heart and they repent. So we see them pursue God in heartfelt confession and adoration. They pray in view of the story of Scripture. And finally, we see third, they are pleading for restoration. This prayer now gets painfully personal. They accept complete ownership of their sin, right? Think of Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Right? Despite Israel's history of rebellion, God has been patient and merciful to them. In verse 32, the Levites now ask God, God, be merciful again. We see then a confession of sin and we see God's righteousness. They know that God has not acted wrongly, right? God was not wrong for punishing them and putting them in Babylonian captivity. They had been wicked. Everyone who has sinned, right? It says in verse 34, God was good to them despite Israel's past failures. Now they're in their own messed up predicament and they are asking God, God, deliver us again. Show us mercy again. You've heard the cries of distress before. Now hear them again, please God. The Levites come away with a specific application point. It says this at the end of verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Having rehearsed God's dealings with his rebellious people, they're prepared to make a covenant and keep it. We're going to look at that next week as we dive into chapter 10. It makes a lot of holy commitments. But for us, where do we go with this? Right? Should we retell the story of God's mercy on rebellious people? Should we repent for mercy and then just resolve to do better? Well, yes and no. Yes, we should prayerfully reflect on the biblical storyline for our own restoration, right? That's a great pattern, but no if we stop at the Old Testament. Yes, if we continue to the, the narrative as it leads us forward to Jesus, You see, we make our plea on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of what Christ has done. If we don't move to the coming of Christ, right? If we don't look at Jesus' life, the fact that he lived a life that none of us could live without sin, that he died a brutal death on the cross that was due us for our rebellion, our sin, and that he extends to us life and life eternal through his resurrection. If we don't tell that story, then we just repeat the cycle. Right? They just told a story that essentially says, hey, this isn't going to work. Right? In 1,000 years, there's been cycles of failure. Six cycles. What are they going to do? Say, hey, God, here we are. We're number seven. I mean, what, what do you think? And I know some of us would say, yeah, but God's merciful. Yes, but he's also righteous. So how is this going to work? What's going to hold sway? Will the mercy run out or is God going to vindicate his righteousness in judging us? Do we just cross our fingers and hope God is merciful again? Or do we say, I'm toast because God's righteous? Two questions for us. One, how do we resolve the tension? How do we resolve the tension of God's righteousness and his mercy? And two, will there ever be a time in which we don't have to deal with sin and distress? Well, the answer to the first question is this, Romans 3, right? So how do we deal with the tension of mercy and righteousness? How is it resolved? The cross. 
Romans 3 says this in verse 21 through 26, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He passed over former sins. Yes, he did, right? We just saw many narrated here in Nehemiah 9. Every time God passed over it, man, did he look unrighteous? But we see that it was in due time that God would act in such a way that his righteousness was vindicated in pouring out his wrath on behalf of sinners and that his mercy was displayed in granting us forgiveness and life through Jesus Christ. And now, now friends, we can repent and find renewal and press on in commitment because we are forgiven, because we know God won't crush us because he's already crushed his son in our place. Now we can say that in Jesus Christ, the cycle is broken. No wrath remains for God's children because a perfect atonement has occurred. Corndale, the storyline of the Bible leads us to this conclusion. Either Jesus takes your punishment or you will bear it. But the Savior came to give you a way out in great mercy and in demonstration of God's righteousness. See, we rebelled, but God is merciful. He is merciful and righteous. Those attributes, they meet at the cross. And in this life, as forgiven sinners, we stumble, but we find new resources to fight sin and have fellowship with the Father who loves his children. We have hope because of the cross. So in sin and distress, where do we run? We run straight to Jesus. That's what he is. He is our Savior. So what of our second question, right? Will there ever be a time in which we don't have to deal with sin and distress? The answer to that is in Ezekiel 36, that we have new power and the hope of never sinning again, right? Ezekiel 36, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right there is the key, that's the ticket, that the spirit will come and empower us for obedience, right? If you have been kind of just grinding your gears, if you feel like, man, I'm trying to live this life, I'm trying to be obedient, but I keep slipping. I keep failing. Again, it's not about perfect obedience. Jesus achieved that for us. It's about a new heart that produces in us joy and a desire that leads to obedience. See, the Spirit is sealing you for the day of redemption. The Spirit is the guarantee that he, God, who began this good work in you, is going to bring it to completion. When you take the story of Scripture to the very end, you come to this climactic end, right? 1 John 3, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There will be a day when we will not sin again. The cycle will be no more. And Jesus makes this possible through his blood. You know what this does? This enables us to find mercy when we fail. 
And we stand in hope knowing that at the end of the fight, there is triumph and we will never sin again. We fight and repent as victors. In times of sin and distress, we can experience God's restoring mercy as we prayerfully, repentantly reflect on the story of Scripture, eventually falling at the feet of the hero of, the, of Scripture, which is Jesus Christ, our Savior. So how, what do we say here in summary? What do we do, right? How do I take this into the week? This is all good and well, but how does this help me on a Tuesday? In other words, how do I apply this? Well, simply put, pray. Pray passionately. Right? Don't just talk about prayer or read about prayer, but actually pray. Think about this. The God who created the world wants to talk with you. And I'm sure some people don't want to talk to you, but God does. He does. People say all the time that the key to marriage is communication. You want fellowship with God? Then hear from his word and talk to him. Prayer is not something to check off of a daily checklist. It's an opportunity for you and I to meet with God. In Nehemiah, we have seen short prayers. We've seen long prayers. This is a long one. The length itself says something, right? Their outer appearance, it says something. But let's not allow the, the verse pray without ceasing to keep us from finding longer periods of time for unhurried and unhindered prayer that we would pray passionately. I remember this elderly lady in Winnegan, Missouri, who said, pray until you've prayed. Pray biblically. Right? Second, pray biblically. If you don't know how to pray for a long time, boom, here you go. If you will pray the scriptures, you will have a lot to pray for, right? We're going to post an exercise on our uh, social media right after this that teaches you how to pray through Psalm 23. It's a great place to start. Your prayers will also be God-centered, right? Because the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God. It tells us who the main subject, and it ends with Jesus triumphing. We get to pray through God's word. But the next thing is this, pray honestly, right? As you pray in light of scripture, scripture reveals your sin and you need to be honest about your sin. We don't like talking about sin and you know why? Because we're sinners. For prayer to be life-changing, it must be honest. But that's hard for us to do when we like to present ourselves in the best possible light, right? Those of you who've kind of, you know, you've gone on some dates, you want to try to put yourself out there as the best version of yourself. What would happen if like maybe when you created your dating profile, if you do that, that you started using the language of Nehemiah 9, right? You started listing out your sins. You think people would hit you up and be like, hey, you want to go out? Probably not, right? But see, honesty, biblical honesty is hard because we don't like to admit it and own our responsibility for our sins. Instead, we prefer to minimize sin, manage sin, rename sin, redefine sin, maybe shift the blame for sin. Well, it's not my fault, it's theirs, or blame it on the other person hearing. Oh, no, 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 you heard that wrong. I didn't mean it that way. We'll do anything to keep from taking ownership of our sin, but don't start, stop there, right? Let's continue to pray honestly. Let's pray repentantly. Let's trust the Lord and let's actually seek to see him change our lives and let's pray hopefully. The answer to all these false practices of repentance is Jesus, right? If, if we are in sin and distress, there's hope because of the atoning work of Jesus, the empowering, restoring work of the Spirit and the assurance of God the Father's love for his children. We can always pray and repent and hope. So pray, man, pray biblically, honestly, repentantly, and you will begin to sense the joy and restoration and renewal of God. Pour out your heart in honest confession of sin. Turn from that sin in real repentance, believing that Jesus is better than your sin. Obedience leads to joy and fulfillment. 
repent out of love for the Savior who poured out his soul to death for sinners like you and I, who promises us a new heaven and a new earth where we will never sin again. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for the hope of Jesus. We're so thankful for this amazing truth of the gospel. Lord, would you lead us to be a people who trust in, who rely on your very spirit to lead us, to guide us. God, we are such in desperate need of Jesus. Teach us to trust you, Lord. Teach us to rely on you, to rest in you. God, we pray all of this with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the finished work of Jesus. It's in his mighty and powerful name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.